¿Qué pasó, gente? It's your boy, Belon, and you are tuned in to another episode of Chocast, a.k.a. the Chicano Podcast. This is being brought to you by Steve Garcia and Chicano. So what's the deal? Today, I'm going to go ahead and um, do a little bit of reading. A uh, really badass article I found uh, the other day, and I think that it's imperative that um, you know we, as Chicanos, uh, read and um, try to fill our brains constantly with things that uh, you know benefit us, not only as people but as uh, individuals, and make us think. <clears throat> uh, before I start reading this, um, I do want to talk a little bit about Malcolm X. Not a lot of people talk about Malcolm X. Not a lot of people give credit to Malcolm X. Not a lot of people... <clears throat> I think a lot of people don't like Malcolm X. And um, I'm going to tell you my take on that. I um, I believe that, you know, the United States, this um, corporation... Um, that calls itself a country, and I'm not um, anti this or anti that. I know where I'm from. I know where I was born. I know where I belong, and I know where all my um, ancestors come from too. And I think that's real important when people start. Um, calling the kettle black, pointing fingers, and talking about patriotism. Um, I say calling the kettle black is because I cannot, for the life of me, find a term to better describe what imposters do. And when I say imposters, I'm talking about all of the colonialists all the people that benefit from the uh, power structure of not only uh, slavery but capitalism at its worst you know you know there is a top there's a bottom and um, there's a middle and there's a lot of people in between there's so much money, um, you know, in the country that, uh, you know, a lot of people were given the opportunity to take advantage of people. Like when the uh, first um, squatters came from a different country on the Mayflower, right? We're taught, this is a story that we're taught. And the dynamics um, of this story are so morally corrupt um, and that's why I say the pot that calls the kettle black because you know <clears throat> how can you go like let me let me just let me let me just uh, uh, break this down into a different scenario how can you like as humans right because we're we're all humans so let's break this down a different way how can you go to another planet okay if we all got on a spaceship um you know let's just say a hundred of us 
And we went and we found this planet that looked just like Earth. And there were already people there. And um, these people were, you know, a little bit different from us. Not much different, but they were different. Let's just say that, you know, maybe they were, I don't know, shorter than us. And that was the only difference. Everything else, obviously they had a different language and different culture, but, you know, they were just different. Not a whole lot, just a little bit. And, um, you know, we went over there and, um, you know, we said that they were the, uh, (laughs) they were the immigrants. They were the invaders or they were the uh, people that didn't belong they were the foreigners. They, um, you know, we had to, you know, develop all these weird stories to make us believe this um, false narrative that, you know, we are, you know, the people that are supposed to be there. But in the ultimate end, you know, once we, you know, put the spin on everything with religion and politics and stories and uh, who knows, Thanksgiving or whatever stories we got to make up to make this narrative uh, seem real. Now they have lived there for let's say millions of years or whatever, thousands of years, hundreds of years, whatever, doesn't matter. They were there before we did, we got there. And um, we found these narratives to say that, you know, we are not the immigrants. We are the, Sovereign people of that planet. The reason I had to take that out of context and put it into a different context is because it's the same exact narrative that this country did a minute ago. You know, you barely started listening to this uh, episode, you know. Already, we're about to point the finger at me and start calling me, um, you know, whatever, anti-American or patriotic or whatever. Um, you know, I mean, maybe you did, maybe you were, maybe you weren't. I don't know, but you know, that's kind of what happens. You know, when people start talking about, uh, you know, what America is and what um, the United States—I'm sorry—isn't. Is it really a country? I mean, is it really um, a truthful uh, corporation? You know, what what exactly uh, makes everything? Because, you know, we've been told a lot of lies, you know. Um, we've been told a narrative that is not true. You know, so what what part of this story is uh, true and what part of this story isn't true? And I'm not taking away from anybody that, you know, served in the military or anything. That's not what I'm doing. But I I feel like because people have convictions, uh, you know, to, you know, family members or the military and all that, that, you know, 
you may feel like uh, that narrative or that story that's been told to you um, somehow, like I said, becomes truth. And again, that's why I call it the pot that calls the kettle black. Because, um, you know, we go to war and we go and defend and we put on the uniform or whatever and go to Iraq or Iran to get some college money. Um, you know, you know, that's what it is. You go and try to get an education or a professional thing. And then, you know, you come back and, you know, obviously, um, you know, you did it for reasons that were not, in my opinion, to be um, a wholeheartedly uh, patriotic defender of the uh, country. You know, you went to go work for a government that is, you know, a good narrator of the facade that I'm talking about right now. The white lies the pot that called the kettle black, you know? And um, like I said, man, I know where I'm from. I know, um, you know, what I even, I even remember um, songs, you know, that uh, give a lot of this merit, you know? Back in the day, I'm sure a lot of you guys were brought up, you know, in church or as a Catholic or a Christian or whatever. You know, you may still believe um, a lot of the things that you were taught, you know, like the tooth fairy and stuff like that. You may. Um, and I'm not going to uh, pounce on your beliefs. However, um, I am going to bring up one of the first songs I remember uh, in church, you know, is it. God loves all the children of the world red yellow black and white and as i went through life i found out that you know there's a very different narrative for red children for black children And that, that narrative is quite different um, when it comes to um, inequality on every level that you can think of, whether it be income or um, whether it be food and poverty and um, health, education, you know, people that are put in prison or subjugated to oppression of all kinds of despicable um, things like rape and slavery and, you know, prisons for profit. You know, there's just so many things we could talk about. And um, I definitely wanted to... Um, say that pot that calls the kettle black because still to this day you know we have people that want to believe that narrative we have people that feel good about themselves um, because of that narrative and we have people that feel bad 
uh, because of that narrative, you know. There are a lot of Native Americans that actually believe that narrative, that lie, that they are immigrants. Can you, that's, that's the part that just really, I think is the only reason I feel like I had to put in this preface. Um, is because I know that there's like real um, Native American, Native Americans, red people, people with, you know, the, um, what is it? The, <laughs> I mean, we got to get genetic. There's a haplogroup. I'm not sure if it's like a Y or a Q, but it's got like a 232 in it or something like that. It's basically the genetic material that's in your blood that makes you not a European or an African. It makes you a person that is from this continent. And I'm not sure if it's uh, 232, uh, but you know, if you were to just go on to, um, let's say Google, and you wanted to, uh, you know, find out, you know, what exactly, uh, you know, I'm talking about, um, there is a, um, you know, way that you could actually find. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It's 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 a haplogroup. Uh, two uh, Q M two forty two. It's like a Y. It's a Y something. Uh, it's a it's a Y chromosome in the DNA haplogroup. But anyways, yeah, man. Um, you know. I definitely wanted to throw that in there because, you know, some people, you could tell them the truth and they still won't even believe you. It's like people, uh, there's a quote that I heard the other day. People will believe a lie before they will. It's a lot easier to tell somebody a lie than it is sometimes to tell them the truth. And you could tell somebody that uh, Chicanos are not uh, immigrants and they will fight you on the shit. That is to me, that is, that, that is, it's comical, man. It's so ridiculous and funny at the same time that we have people that would take that argument in a heartbeat, like, and believe it, man. Like, seriously, believe it. So I'm going to go ahead and stop right there because now we're into comedy and, um, you know, everything that I've said, you could just go Google it, spend some time. Um, you know, if you're in the uh, mode of disbelief, but if you're in the mode of like, hey, man, this guy is on to something. Yeah, you know, still go and Google it. That way, if somebody ever challenges you, you know, you're smart enough to know, you know, where you come from. You know, don't let nobody tell you that, um, you know, you don't belong here. Especially if you're gente. I mean, if you're Mexicano, if you're Chicano, if you're Native American, if you're uh, indigenous, if you're one of the red people that that song refers to, that Christian song, you know, that's just another thing. You know, you got all these people that talk about being good people, righteous people, morally ethical. And they're the worst fucking liars. In society, the pot that calls the kettle black. One of these days, I'm going to write a book, man. It's going to be a badass. It's going to be a badass liberal, man. Better pick it up, man. 
But uh, yeah, let me go ahead and uh, read this uh, article um, from my boy Malcolm. Malcolm X. Um, you know, I think he was misunderstood, but I think a lot of people weren't ready for him. And that's because they wanted to believe this false narrative that, uh, you know, we lived in a beautiful um, society where everybody told the truth um, about who they thought they were. And they always wanted to point the finger at other people to make the other people the enemy or the pot that called the kettle black again. Because you got to remember what Malcolm X was always fighting for. He was just wanting some equality, man. You know, his people had suffered um, a lot of inequality. And somebody like that, man, it's very rare that you have somebody stand up for their people without wanting anything. He didn't want anything. He did it for his people. And I find that, man, I, I think that's fucking chingon. And I think that if more of our people would do that, we would uh, be better off as people. So I'm going to go ahead and um, tell you this article was published by Common Dreams on February the 2nd of 2015 by Truthdig. Um, it's called Malcolm X was right about America by Chris... Hedges. Malcolm X, about two weeks before he was murdered in 1965, there's a picture of him, photo by A.P. Victor Boynton, New York. Malcolm X, unlike Martin Luther King Jr., did not believe America had a conscience. For him, there was no great tension between the lofty ideals of the nation, which he said were a sham. And the failure to deliver justice to blacks, he, perhaps better than King, understood the inner workings of empire. He had no hope that those who managed empire would ever get in touch with their better selves to build a country free of exploitation and injustice. He argued that from the arrival of the first slave ship to the appearance of our vast archi archipelago of prisons and our squalid urban internal colonies where the poor are trapped and abused the American Empire was unrelentingly hostile to those France Fanon called the wretched of the earth this Malcolm knew would not change until the empire was destroyed it is impossible for capitalism to survive Primarily because the system of capitalism needs some blood to suck, Malcolm said. He also said capitalism used to be like an eagle, but now it's more like a vulture. It used to be strong enough to go and suck anybody's blood, whether they were strong or not. But now it has become more cowardly like the vulture. And it now can only suck the blood of the helpless as the nations of the world free themselves, then capitalism has less victims, less to suck, and it becomes weaker and weaker. It's only a matter of time, in my opinion, before it will all collapse completely. End quote. 
Now, King was able to achieve a legal victory through the civil rights movement portrayed in the new film Selma, but he failed to bring about economic justice and thwart the rapacious appetite of the war machine that he was acutely aware was responsible for empire's abuse of the oppressed at home and abroad. In 50 years of Malcolm X was assassinated in the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem hit by hitmen from the Nation of Islam. It's clear that he, not King, was right. We are the nation Malcolm knew us to be. Human beings can be redeemed, empires cannot. Our refusal to face the truth about empire, our refusal to defy the multitudinous crimes, multitudinous, multitudinous crimes and atrocities of empire has brought about the nightmare Malcolm predicted. And as the digital age and post-literate society implant a terrifying historical amnesia, these crimes are erased as swiftly as they are committed. We are the nation Malcolm knew us to be. Human beings can be redeemed. Empires cannot. Sometimes I have dared to dream that one day history may even say that my voice which disturbed the white man's smugness and his arrogance and his complacency that my voice helped to save America from a grave, possible, possibly even fatal catastrophe, Malcolm wrote. That's pretty cool. The way he um, said that. Because I think that is how um, Anglo-Saxon Europeans or, you know, uh, people talk about Malcolm X and I think that's why he's not um, as praised um, as he should be because he just said it himself you know he said disturbed the white man's smugness his voice did that and I think it still does that to this day I'll go on The integration of elites of color, including Barack Obama, into the upper echelons of institutional and political structures has done nothing to blunt the predatory nature of empire. Identity and gender politics. We are about to be sold a woman president in the form of Hillary Clinton have fostered as Malcolm understood fraud and theft by Wall Street, the evisceration of our civil liberties, the misery of an underclass in which half of all public school children live in poverty, the expansion of our imperial wars, in the deep and perhaps fatal exploitation of the ecosystem. And until we heed Malcolm X, until we grapple with the truth about the self-destruction that lies at the heart of empire, the victims at home and abroad will mount Malcolm like James Baldwin understood that only by facing the truth about who we are as members of an imperial power can can people of color along with whites be liberated. The truth is bitter and painful. It requires an acknowledgement of our capacity for evil, injustice, and exploitation, and it demands repentance. But we cling like giddy children to the lies we tell ourselves about ourselves. We refuse to grow up, and because of these lies perpetrated across the cultural and political spectrum, liberation has not taken place. Empire devours, empire devours us all. We're anti-evil, anti-oppression, anti-lynching, Malcolm said. You can't be anti those things unless you're also anti the oppressor and the lyncher. 
You can't be anti-slavery and pro-slave master. You can't be anti-crime and pro-criminal. In fact, Mr. Muhammad teaches that if the present generation of whites would study their own race in the light of true history, they would be anti-white themselves. Malcolm once said that had he been a middle-class black who was encouraged to go to law school rather than a poor child in a detention home who dropped out of school at 15, I would probably be among some city's professional black burgoys sipping cocktails and palming myself off as a community spokesperson for and leader of the suffering black masses while my primary concern would be to grab a few more crumbs from the groaning board of the two-faced whites with whom they're begging to integrate. Malcolm's family struggling and poor was callously ripped apart by state agencies in the pattern that remains unchanged. The court's substandard schooling Roach-filled apartments, fear, humiliation, despair, poverty, greedy bankers, abusive employers, police jails, and probation officers did their work then as they do it now. Malcolm saw racial integration as a politically sterile game, one played by a black middle class anxious to sell its soul as an enabler of empire and capitalism. The man who tosses worms in the river, Malcolm said, isn't necessarily a friend of the fish. All the fish who take him for a friend who think the worm's got no hook on it usually ends up in the frying pan. He related to the book. He related to the apocalyptic battles in the book of Revelation where he persecuted rise upon up in revolt against the wicked. Martin Luther King Jr. doesn't have the revolutionary fire that Malcolm had until the very end of his life. Cornell West says in his book with Krista Buschendorf, Black Prophetic Fire, and by revolutionary fire, I mean understanding the system under which we live. The capitalist system, the imperialist or the imperial tentacles, the American empire, the disregard for life, the willingness to violate law, be it international law or domestic law. Malcolm understood that from very early on and hit Martin so hard that he does become a revolutionary in his own moral way later in his short life where Malcolm, whereas Malcolm had the revolutionary fire so early in his life. There are three great books on Malcolm X. The Autobiography of Malcolm X, as told to Alex Haley, The Death and Life of Malcolm X by Peter Goldman and Martin and Malcolm in America, A Dream or Nightmare by James H. Cohn. On Friday, I met Goldman, who as reporter for St. Louis newspaper and later for Newsweek knew and covered Malcolm in a New York City cafe. Goldman was a part of a tiny circle of white reporters. Malcolm respected, including Charles Silverman of Fortune and MS Mike Handler of the New York Times, who Malcolm once said had none of the usual prejudices or sentimentalities about black people. Goldman and his wife, Helen Dudar, who also was a reporter, first met Malcolm in 1962 at the Shabazz Frosty Cream, a black Muslim luncheonette in St. Louis, or St. Louis, Northside Ghetto. At the meeting, Malcolm poured some cream into his coffee. Coffee is the only thing I like integrated, he commented. He went on, the average Negro doesn't even let another Negro know what he thinks. He's so mistrusting. 
He's an acrobat. He had to be to survive in this civilization. But by being a Muslim, I'm black first. My sympathies are black. My allegiance is black. My whole objectives are black. By me being a Muslim, I'm not interested in being American because America has never been interested in me. He told Goldman and Dudar, we don't hate. The white man has a guilt complex. He knows he's done wrong. He knows that if he has had undergone at our hands what we have undergone at his, he would hate us. When Goldman told Malcolm he believed in a single society in which race did not matter, Malcolm said sharply, you're dealing in fantasy. You've got to deal in facts. Goldman remembered he was the messenger who brought us the bad news. Nobody wanted to hear it. Despite the bad news, at that first meeting, Goldman would go on to have several more interviews with him, interviews that often lasted two or three hours. The writer now credits Malcolm for his re-education. Goldman was struck from the beginning by Malcolm's unfailing courtesy, his dazzling smile, his moral probity, his courage, and surprisingly his gentleness. Goldman mentions the day that psychologist and writer Kenneth B. Clark and his wife escorted a group of high school students, most of them white, to meet Malcolm. They arrived to find him surrounded by reporters. Mrs. Clark, feeling that meeting with reporters was probably more important, told Malcolm the teenagers would wait. The important thing is these kids, Malcolm said to the Clarks as he called the students forward. He didn't see a difference between white, white kids and kids. Kenneth Clark is quoted as saying in Goldman's book, James Baldwin, James Baldwin, too, wrote of Malcolm's deep sensitivity. He and Malcolm were on a radio program in 1961 with a young civil rights activist who had just returned from the South. If you are an American citizen, Baldwin remembered Malcolm asking the young man, why have you got to fight for your rights as a citizen? To be a citizen means that you have the rights of a citizen. If you haven't got the rights of a citizen, then you're not a citizen. It's not as simple as that, the young man answered. Why not, Malcolm asked. During the exchange, Baldwin wrote, Malcolm understood that child and talked to him as though he was talking to a younger brother. And with that same watchful attention, what most struck me, that he was not at all trying to proselytize the child. He was trying to make him think. I would never forget Malcolm and that child facing each other and Malcolm's extraordinary gentleness. And that's the truth about Malcolm. He was one of the gentlest people I have ever met. One of Malcolm's many lines that I liked was, I am the man you think you are, Goldman said. What he meant by that it was, if you hit me, I would hit you back. But over the period of my acquaintance with him, I came to believe it also meant if you respect me, I will respect you back. Cohn amplifies this point in Martin and Malcolm in America. Malcolm X is the best medicine against genocide. He showed us by example and prophetic preaching that one does not have to stay in the mud. We can wake up. We can stand up. We can take that long walk towards freedom. Freedom is first and foremost an inner recognition of self-respect and knowledge that one was not put on this earth to be a nobody using drugs and killing each other are the worst forms of nobodyness. Our forefathers fought 
against great odds, slavery, lynching, and segregation, but they did not self-destruct. Some died fighting, and others, inspired by their example, kept moving towards the promised land of freedom, singing, we ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. African Americans can do the same. Today, we can fight for our dignity and self-respect. To be proud, to be black, does not mean being against white people unless whites are against respecting the humanity of blacks. Malcolm was not against whites. He was for blacks and against their exploitation. Goldman lamented the loss of voices such as Malcolm's voices steeped in an understanding of our historical and cultural truths and endowed with the courage to speak these truths in public. We don't read anymore, Goldman said. We don't learn anymore. History is disappearing. People talk about living in the moment as if, uh, if it is a virtue. It is a horrible vice between the Twitter verse and the 24-hour cable news cycle. Our history keeps disappearing. History is something boring that you had and endure in high school and then you are rid of it. Then you go to college and study finance, accounting, business management, and computer science. There are damn few liberal art majors left. And this has erased our history. The larger figure in the 60s was, of course, King. But what the huge majority of Americans know about King is only that he made a speech where he said, I have a dream, and that his name is attached to a day off. Malcolm, like King, understood the cost of being a prophet. The two men daily faced down this cost. Malcolm, as Goldman writes, met with the reporter Claude Lewis not long before his February 21st, 1965 murder. He had already experienced several attempts on his life. <clears throat> this is an era of hypocrisy, he told Lewis, when white folks pretend that they want Negroes to be free and Negroes pretend to white folks that they really believe what white folks want um to be free. It's an era of hypocrisy, brother. You fool me and I fool you. You pretend that you're my brother and I pretend that I really believe you believe you're my brother. He told Lewis he would never reach old age. If you reach, if you read, you'll find that very <clears throat> few people who think like I think live long enough to get old. When I say by any means necessary, I mean it with all my heart, my mind, and my soul. A black man should give his life to be free. And he should also be able to be willing to take his life of those who want to take his. When you really think like that, you don't live long. Lewis asked him how he wanted to be remembered sincere, Malcolm said. And whatever I did or do, even if I made mistakes, they were made in sincerity. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong in sincerity. I think the, the best thing that a person can be is sincere. The price of freedom, Malcolm said shortly before he was killed, is death. Man, that's it. And that's it. I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap this up. I ain't got much more to say. You can take um, that article the way that you want to take that. I appreciate you tuning in to the podcast. And um, I'll catch you on the rebound. Peace out. And until the next episode, I have to watch them.